I already spilled like an entire glass of gin and tonic down the side of my desk. Oh. This is how you get ants. Drunk, cool ants, but ants. This, this is how you get ants. Are there ants in the UK? I don't think England has ants. Yeah. I've yet to see them. <laughs> Never seen We have a lot of spiders. Ant. Like, you know, in all the nursery rhymes, the spiders eat mostly. No, they eat flies. I'm wrong. We have flies. Okay. Hey, and <laughs> welcome to Plants and Papats, where we talk about what's happening in the plant world. Um, and I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram, and we're back. It's we're another back. year. Um, we did a big extravaganza last year. Did we? We did the Christmas thing. Yes. So much talking. <laughs> Although, like, we used the, the magic of, of editing to make it seem like we talked every day for 24 days, and thankfully we did not have to do that. <laughs> Thank God that we didn't have to spend every single day talking fun, for 10 minutes to one another. A fun game if you are playing at home is you can you can actually probably work out when when we recorded which episodes as the quality gradually decreases and then hopefully picks up again with the second or third batch of recording. <laughs> like, there was like a, a strong block where at the end we're just like, oh, blah, 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 plants and pivots advent calendar. Welcome, welcome. Yeah. Uh, still, I hope everybody enjoyed their winter break. Um, had like as much fun as possible. Summer and break if you're in the southern hemisphere, also. Yeah, yeah. The break. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you didn't even break. Maybe you worked all the way through. Maybe you're neither Christian nor hypocritical and did not take the Christmas period off. I wish everybody had a nice time and continues to have a nice time in whatever circumstances they are in. I hope that's yeah. inclusive enough. Um. Yes, we're back. Um. And how have you been, Tegan? My shoulder hurts. <laughs> I've never been from, good. <laughs> from from twenty twenty two, like how is my twenty twenty two been? Yeah, how how is your twenty twenty two? Do you have any New Year's resolutions that you want to share? I saw in the the Nature briefing this morning that they finally like they did that transplant, so they've been uh, genetically modifying pig organs to not express I think it's a sugar um, and this sugar is something that has an immune response when it's put into the human body so it causes people to reject the organs so they did like the first transplant I think it was a heart transplant with a pig into a human body um, based on that I've decided that by 2080 I will be at least 20% pig is that a resolution? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you stopped these plans when you left Germany I thought just based on a German diet alone um, you turn into a pig no, no, I think I've discussed this with my housemate now. You're not allowed to just ingest the pig. You have to actually sort of become <laughs> part pig. That's that's what I'm planning, I think. I mean, yeah, it's 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 a good aim. Um, I don't know if what animal I would like to choose. I don't know if I would choose pig if I could, like, take random organs from other animals. I mean, I know they choose pigs because they're roughly, like, like people um, from, like, the size yeah, of the whole but thing. Sure, surely you'd go for gills or something. Gills or wings. I mean... Yeah, no, 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 just, yeah, probably like from from a bird, but yeah, I don't know. Try to. Think I mean, of. there's there's literally no benefit of being a pig. Maybe you can smell truffles more easily. Like, you, if you really like truffles, easier to find <laughs> truffles. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you get that idea from a book that we're currently reading? There's like extensive description of truffles searching and how great truffles are, and it made me want to have a truffle. Uh, yes, that book that I've definitely also started reading. 
that one. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can talk about that next week on the podcast, not this week. <laughs> okay. It's due, it's due on Sunday, so I guarantee I would read it by Sunday. I, I have joined, that is one of my resolutions is to, you know, read more novels. I think I had the same resolution last year and didn't do super well. I, did, I read maybe like... 15 books so it's not like great but it's not awful awful um, it's like 12 more than i read yeah but you have an actual like things you're doing with your life and you've probably read like an uncountable number of picture books or books about <laughs> yes, trucks true. or something right <laughs> but i now can tell joined, you like, so much about fire engines <laughs> there you go i don't have i don't have that knowledge about I mean, I remember when I was at your house, I was trying to read a book to your child and it was just naming all the different types of truck things. Mm -hmm. I don't even know those names in English. Like, they're all just sort of trucks to me, but they've got about 30 different... Yeah, yeah, they're all, like, very specific. Tractor and roller and I don't know. And it's to kids, it's very important to make the distinctions between the ones that are cool and the ones that do heavy lifting and the one that's just like a lorry or I don't know, yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've decided I've, I've joined like four book clubs somehow um, <laughs> as part okay. of this aim. And I have a set amount of books I have to read for January. I have four books I've committed to reading for January for those book clubs. And then on Sunday, I spent the entire day reading a completely different book. I ignored all of the book club books <laughs> and went with something. I read um the, the Sally Rooney, not the new one, Normal People. There's like a Netflix series. I read... Conversations with Friends, which is her first book. It's incredible. It's amazing. There's this... Her characters are all a bit awkward and they're bad at communicating. And then they do this thing where they miscommunicate. And there's this sort of reaction which goes... Everything sort of spirals out of control from simple miscommunication. And it it just... It gets me so much. It's just... It feels so... Such an accurate representation of everything in life. And it's it's very sad, but very beautiful. And it's also... It's quite reassuring. These are like best-selling books and they're they're portraying something which feels it's something like we we all feel like we feel it and nobody else feels it but obviously everybody else feels that this is a, these are books that are wrestling so yeah i read normal people which is also apparently a really really good netflix series so i'm set for winter man like i've read two of her books i've got one and a half more books done great yeah i think that i respond now with the classic sentence of everybody who here's people who like books talking about books it's like i wish i would read more but i don't um but i think oh, the trick is not to read just to talk about wanting to read like that's that's how you do yeah. it you don't no, have I to think actually the trick read is, the trick is what you did right is like join several book clubs because then you have a pile of books that mm. triggers you to read something but then you read something else but in the end you still have read something you just haven't read like your homework but yeah. still you wouldn't have read the other thing if you weren't reading the other thing to put off reading the actual thing that you have to read. Um, That's exactly it. It's like I I will read those other books because I work. I will work to the deadline. You know, the day before we have the book club, I will read those books because you have to. Otherwise, you feel shame. Um, but I'm I'm a highly deadline and shame motivated person, and otherwise, I will not read those <laughs> books. <laughs> I have I have one more New Year's resolution, which mm -hmm. is maybe more plant related. I'm going to learn how to rip open an apple with my hands <laughs> that i can be like truly brave and strong which i think I've, fits in with your new year's resolution yeah i've seen like on on tiktok i've seen like this trend of people learning like some people showing the tricks and some other people like attempt attempting it um and then often achieving it and being like surprised by themselves that they are actually able to do this if you like i don't know 
in which I direction mean, you pull it apart. And realistically, but, I was just like faffing around. Like every few weeks, I buy a bunch of apples, being like, "Apples are good for you. Apples are healthy. If you eat apples, you'll be fit and strong." I should eat apples, <laughs> and then I bring them home, and inevitably, the apples rot in my crisper because I do not enjoy apples. Like apples. By and large, and I, I'm going to sound like an old person, but like apples can taste good, but the apples in the stores, they don't taste like apples. They taste like flour that's like dressed up like an apple and kind of painted red like the Snow Queen does in Snow White. What's her name? The Snow Queen? Something like that. So I was like in the kitchen talking to my housemate and like pretending to eat an apple, but just basically faffing around with it. And at one point he's like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm just like tugging at this apple for 20 minutes trying to like, you know, I'll, I'll eat it once I can break it. That, that will be, that will be the signal that I have to start eating it once I've ripped it open. And I think I'm just going to do it as a long con. I think I'm going to like bring it up every few, like every few weeks, sort of have an apple and be playing around. Be like, Oh, I feel like I'm almost there. And then one time I'll just cut the apple and then be faffing around and then like open it and he'll be super impressed. Right. Yeah, and, and then sees like the perfectly straight cut of the apple. But I have okay, a good recommendation if you don't like apples, like what I used to do or what, what, what I'm doing when I want to eat an, uh, an apple or maybe even several apples. I just like put some butter in a pan and some sugar and make a caramel. <laughs> and then I put like apples in there, like roughly yeah. chopped. And then I put like some puff pastry on top and then I bake that. And then mm. I eat that and it's like, it's healthy. It has a ton of apples in it. Um I feel um, like I saw exactly the same thing on, on Instagram <laughs> this morning. Right? If you don't like, I can't even remember what the healthy ingredient was. Something healthy. And there's like, add butter, sugar, flour, mix, bake for 180 degrees for 20 minutes. And it's basically yeah. you're making a cake, but with, I don't know, maybe it's apples. Maybe it was apples. Something yeah. healthy. Yeah. If you don't want to bake a cake, you can always just like deep fry it and then it's tasty. It's maybe not as healthy anymore. <laughs> So if if new new me new year new Tegan is like me weighed down with a hundred books I'm not reading, trying to rip open an apple and like made out of at least ten percent pig, twenty percent by twenty eighty, let's go for ten percent this year. What's new Yoram gonna be? <laughs> Your new Yoram is gonna be um a gym bro, like super buff, <laughs> um incredible biceps, um never skipping leg day. Do you I know do you know which one the biceps are? No, it's like on your arms, I think. Okay, just checking. <laughs> That's okay. Like, that would be I like, it's like mm. one is like doing the pulling up, and the other one is the the one that stretches the arm out. I have no idea. Um, but I'm there going to the gym. There are biceps and triceps, but I'm not really certain. Yeah. Where the tri? I think the biceps is like the one that you show the guns, but I don't know where the tricep will be then. That, I think that's on the underside. That's in sort of that does the opposite movement. That's the only thing I know that biceps and triceps are sort of pl like players that work opposite one one another. Cool. But yeah, yeah, I'm I joined a gym now and like we've been going to the gym like years ago after work and it was sort of it was I okay. Mean, I mean, we had we had a gym membership. Let's be realistic about this. We were gym buddies and we had a gym membership together. For a while we actually went and then for mm -hmm. a long time we only paid for it. I yeah, and mostly go. like us going was we went and then you got very fit very fast and could run really fast and <laughs> I got really mad and jealous and then I remember once we like had a race across the, the Potsdam main train station because I was like of course I'm faster than you and you're like you're really not and then we, we ran to the train and I basically just yeah <sighs> I failed <laughs> Yeah, and now like, I'm surprised at myself, like, how much I'm into this. Like, I've been three times last week. I'm already, like, two times this week. And then just, like, I just, like, sort of last week on Monday, I clicked online for my membership. And then 
immediately like since then i've went five times and i will go again like on friday or something um and i'm really enjoying it but i'm sort of enjoying it out of this way this this weird feeling of um doing it to spite my body like it's sort of <laughs> punishment yeah sort of sort masochism. Of like self, but, but not only like yeah it's not that i i hate myself doing it like i i do generally enjoy it but it's sort of like I want to show my body who's the boss, and this is like my brain forcing my body to become healthier. No, I want to show that apple who's boss. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm just gonna say one of us is gonna win. What is it? Do our resolution resolve something? I think I've got more chance of dominating that apple. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. Like it, it takes a long time to like force a body into shape, but um. I'm I'm trying like uh, and yeah that's the um, that's sort of my resolution. Although like when I always fear that if you call it a New Year's resolution, then it's pretty much doomed from the start. Then I know that I will just like let this gym membership I think slide. It's, it's January 16, isn't it? That's when yeah. like 99% by January 16 already there's we've basically asymptote like the the major drop off has already happened and everybody's bailed on their plans and it's back to. Yeah, I mean the gym is the quite health- full right now, yeah. um, as expected, and like the sort of the people, the usuals, you could overhear them talking, like, "Oh yeah, it's it's very full now, but let let's wait two weeks and it will be fine again." <laughs> are you are you mentioning this on the podcast so that you have accountability, or is it just? I mean, it just is. It's your life uh, now. This isn't going to become a fitness help podcast. Me, like, I mean, I, I, I would accept the shame when I finally, like, stop doing it um, and then people publicly shaming me for it. I would accept that. Um, but it's not why I'm talking about it. Like, I don't try to, like, spread the news as far as possible so that, like, I have outside pressure because it doesn't work. Like, I have outside pressure from so many things <laughs> and most of the time I can ignore it. So it is um, slightly more public. Yeah. And I mean, if you do fail, I'm going to be just like walking up to you and, you know, ripping open apples and wagging my little pigtail and being like so smug. <laughs> <laughs> just like your your path is like clustered in, in showered in half uh, op- broken apples, apple halves left and right of you. Yeah. I think that like <laughs> when you when you get, get that good, you break them. But do you... I mean, eating the apples was never really part of my aim, to be honest. I I can see you I getting kicked out of the having... store, sitting like in the fruit aisle, just breaking off all of the apples there. Nah, maybe we'll be cheering, throwing coins at my feet. Do people use coins still? I'll have one of those little tap things that they can like tap me <laughs> two pounds. And that's that's going to be it. That's how I find my fame. Miss, miss, this is a Tesco's. Please leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reputable outlet. <laughs> You're just like crunch, crunch, crunch. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm 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 up to. I also talked to like some kids about CRISPR, but um, we can talk about CRISPR later today. So then I can also maybe talk, say what the kids told me, like or ask me about CRISPR. But just like, just like a school class, and I did sort of my my first presentation in several months now because I'm I'm on parental leave, and it was it was fun to do this like, like. Zoom this, meetings can actually your... be fun if you do them only like every three months. Is it part of your job or you're just no. like wandering into random classrooms? <laughs> how, okay, how, yeah. how does it work? It's not because your your job is not this. Your job is sort of uni- has been university related, not children related. Yeah, no, no. It's like something that's like completely unrelated to my, my job. Um, it's like last year they approached me. I actually don't know how, how they um, 
found me, but they approached me. They were doing like it's a Montessori school, and the kids are sort of self-organizing, and they were doing um, a section on CRISPR, and some of the students. Um, reached out to me and were like, hey, we need an expert for CRISPR. Would you mind like being an expert in our classroom um, and tell us a little bit about it? And I said, yeah, fine. It's, that sounds like fun. I did it last year and they were like, ah, that's, that, that was good. Can you do it again next year? And so I did. Uh, and this is a good point to, to mention that you have a viral video on YouTube where you <laughs> sort of dress up like Dexter and splash paint on things to just sort of explain how CRISPR. We'll link that in the show notes, I think. It's in German, but, you know, why not learn German in 2022? It's a world language, right? Dozens of people have seen it. Dozens. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about plant science. It's the paper of the week. So, yeah, today's paper is uh, all flesh fruit in tomato is controlled by reduced expression dosage of AFF through a structural variant mutation in the promoter. Um, this paper is, paper is published in a journal of experimental botany. It's from Lei Liu um, uh, from the, from I think, uh, let me see, from Beijing in China from the uh, key laboratory of biology and genetic improvement of horticultural crops of the Ministry of Agriculture in the Institute of Vegetables and Flowers and the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Science. That's a very long title. I don't know which one describes what. But anyway, it's a, it's a cool paper talking about tomato. Um, can, can I ask, what, what were the tomatoes called? They were called all flesh fruit tomatoes. I see. <laughs> I just want to quickly mention that we're going to go with tomato for the rest of this podcast, not tomato. Otherwise, I mean, I'm an Australian who was in Germany for too long. My, I'm going to flip flop and it's going to be disastrous. So let's just. What is the British way to say it? Tomato. Then also I will the Australian do my best way. to say tomato. Because I, it's just this flip floppy thing where everybody's uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, then this will be an uncomfortable episode for everyone. Um, I'm almost sorry, but uh, yeah, I still write like color with OU just because it makes me feel smarter. Um, and so that's why I want to say tomatoes now. Let's go to the paper. So what's actually what's actually happening here? Um, the paper talks about, um, sort of indirectly, but to me very direct. It speaks to me because, like, to me, tomatoes have, like, major disadvantages. Um, I mean, everybody knows, like, what a tomato looks like. Um, red and inside you have, like, this disgusting jelly mess um that's useless that's watery like when you put like make like mozzarella and tomato tomatoes um it makes it like all watery <laughs> and and um when you bite into it it's like the the jelly stuff so um that's disgusting that's why pretty much everybody agrees that tom- tomatoes are the worst and then sorry um, sorry is this, is this a true <laughs> opinion that you have is this really i was gonna say like this is my favorite part of the tomato by a long way this the the bit that's not flesh and is not fully liquid, the sort of gelatinous bit, like that's what makes a tomato, surely. No, I I I don't. Um, it's not my favorite part about a tomato, a tomato, but I don't mind it at all. <laughs> like, um, I'm I'm really in in seriousness. Like, I, I'm fine with it, um, mm-hmm. but it's not my my favorite bit. Like, the, I like the there's like this this carabeuf varieties, like these. Um, 
the beef heart ones beef heart yeah, yeah um, that have much more fleshy bits um, and I prefer those over like the big inflated ones with but they, they also have like very flavorsome they're sort of this heirloom variety right they have yeah. the more flavorsome flesh as well whereas I think with the, the modern large red tomatoes not the sort of small cherry ones like the flesh doesn't have much flavor either That's true, so then yeah. I would prefer the 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 wet bits <laughs> which are called locule yeah this is how we name the wet jelly bit yeah locule i did i did like that this locule comes up in the abstract of the paper and the introduction and i was like i don't know what that is i googled locule and the only thing that locule you can find is other papers on tomatoes that are referring to locule i was like i've just i mean you can get it from the context it does become clear <laughs> but at no point does somebody stop and say Psst, in case you don't know the the locule is actually that 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 jelly bit that's a, it's also like a good party fun fact when there's like a a, a mixed like a salad platter and then you can like pick up like a piece of to- tomato in there and be like did you know like the little jelly part in there it's actually called the locule um cool and i guess this is how you find friends um the other downside that tomatoes have undoubtedly is that they get soft with time and yep. get mushy and rot and when you put a tomato on the shelf to sell it and it takes like two or three weeks to convince somebody to buy it it will be like soft and disgusting and nobody will then want it um so i'm imagining a scenario where like your spent your 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 job is to convince people to buy tomatoes <laughs> one tomato Please, have like one tomato this, on the shelves it. it's gonna be a great experience <laughs> sir sir Best can i interest you sir, in please. our tomato <laughs> just one we got rid of the locule <laughs> So people have already sort of tried doing a lot of things to alter tomatoes, yeah. make them better. I mean, the major thing we've had is the same with every crop, basically. We've made them bigger, fatter, like larger is basically the main thing. Um, so a lot more water weight, Yeah, in, some would say. Um, yeah, it's just b- bigger and juicier tomatoes. But there's also been sort of some success in modification of tomatoes somehow. Yeah, in um, 1949, uh, no, 1994... <laughs> Mm-hmm. I have troubles pronouncing numbers. Um, in in the nineties, uh, I think yep. it was the year when a Nirvana's Nevermind album uh, was published. In that year, um, there was a company that like was inspired by gr- <laughs> no, <laughs> grunge music. Has nothing to do with it, but there is a company called Calgene, uh, Cal and they improved um, the tomato. They created a tomato that got very famous then later on. I think I even read in like in school textbooks about this, the flavor saver yeah. tomato. Um, so maybe you have heard of it as well. Yeah, I also remember hearing about it, I think again in textbooks, probably in university, not in school, but this idea that it's a tomato that it can just sit on the shelf for weeks and weeks and maybe months and months and it doesn't <laughs> ever get that kind of dried out, shriveled, rotting look. I, I In my mind, it's because the sort of cuticle outside the tomato is a bit... Um, stronger and it's not losing water. Is that true, or no, I, I don't? No. In, in in the end, what what they um, turned off in there is the um, polygalactoronase um, enzyme, and this is an enzyme that can break down the cell walls, and this is what makes a tomato go mushy because um, the cell walls mm-hmm. get slowly disintegrated from within from enzymes that are already in the tomato. Um, because uh, from the point of view of the tomato plant, this is a good thing. Like. It doesn't want to drop its tomato and it just like stays there in perfect shape mm. for all eternity. Like it wants it to degrade at one point. It actually helps them also um, with ripening the seeds. Like they have to go through a sort of fermentation phase um, before they can um, sprout again. So for the tomato, it's very important. For us as the, as like consumers of tomato, consumers. we don't really enjoy that process happening. 
This was definitely one thing where I, I can remember having seen two pictures side by side. It's like, these tomatoes are both eight weeks old and one looks like a perfect fresh tomato and one of them does not. And I remember it really screwing with my head in the way of, you know, when you're sort of like existential crisis, what does rot mean then? I mean, surely the one that looks pretty is still rotten on the inside. Surely it's still bad. I didn't know. Like, they didn't have the well. details about the enzymes and the breakdown, but I was like, surely it's still rotten. It just looks like superficially good. But I mean, if it's actually an enzyme change, then it 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 is limiting that breakdown, the degradation. So Yeah, but then there's like other things that break down as well. I mean, we know from like apostos- apoptosis, like the like programmed cell death that cells have all kinds of ways to slowly degrade the contents in the cell, not only the cell walls, but all other things in there as well. So I wonder if like it still has all of the structure and like all of the like the internal pressures up so the thing is like nice and 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 um This does it feels like a question that a little bit of less wondering, a little bit more Googling would probably help us solve pretty fast, but we have not done that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, this is just like to show that like people were working on the tomato to find ways to make it like not rot for a long time. Um, uh, unfortunately, like the the flavor saver tomato um, only existed in, in on the market for like three years. Um, then, because the the company who invented it wasn't actually able to produce tomatoes at scale, so they were mm-hmm. never able to turn a profit. And then. Um, Monsanto at one point bought the company and sort of stopped the production. I don't really know why they did that, um, but um, they stopped it. But the Flavor Saver tomato was the first genetically modified crop that made it to the consumer market um, on a large scale. So that was um, th- that's why I think it's also in all of the textbooks. I mean, we do also need to discuss the fact that it was called Flavor Saver, where it's F-L-A-V-R-S-A-V-R. <laughs> that wasn't going to make it out of the 90s, in fairness. Like, maybe up to 98.99, but that was I not. I don't know. It sounds like an app from today. Like, all of the apps today, like, drop some vocal uh, vowels. So, to me, like, Flavor Saver could be, like, a new app for recipes or something. Also, isn't flavor saver what we call moustaches? Isn't that slang for like a like you you catch food on your moustache and that's? I only know like much worse words to describe a moustache than that, so I don't know. Cool. Um, so back to the paper. Uh, <laughs> this was kind of a success, maybe not quite a success. It got to the market, but then it was got withdrawn fairly shortly afterwards. So now we want to talk about other ways to modify tomatoes. Yeah, and this this time it's less about um, the rot. Um, but mm-hmm. in some way as well, but mostly about the jelly in the tomatoes, the, the locule. Um, because researchers have found a natural variety of tomato that has almost no jelly, almost none of the locule, and only f- like fleshy bits of the tomato in there. Um, Which means this is not this is not a development. This is something that sort of nature yeah. came up with by itself by basically a mistake. It, it's yeah. messed up a gene and we got these these plants i did i did notice in the references that it has been patented though oh has it i think so yeah i yeah mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> or I did, there's I didn't at least there was that. a reference to a patent in there yeah that's that's yeah I, I i don't know enough about patent law and like i'm i'm fairly critical about the idea of patenting crops but anyway yeah apparently they could patent a natural variety that they that they described um so basically they already had these 
they had the phenotype already. They could see that tomatoes didn't have this jelly locule stuff. Uh, and then they're trying to find out, well, we've got this thing. What is the gene or the genes that are causing this lack of jelly? So this is, this is old school forward genetics, right? Yeah. We've got a phenotype that we've somehow selected for or has arrived by chance. And then we're trying to find out. We're going to go towards the gene to work out what the gene is that causes this difference yeah exactly and so they, they did uh, a number of analyses um i think they did some sequencing um they also did like they they looked at metabolo- uh, metabolomics um and they pinpointed it to one specific gene um um that's called that was had a name from before as well that, and that name was simbp3 or simbp3 um, which is Ooh, um, I think it might be SLMBP3 it might be oh, maybe, yeah. SL for oh, yeah. Solanum Lycopersicum okay yeah that, and then the MB is Madbox maybe Protein 3 Madbox something that three? could be yeah mm. you're much cleverer than I am yeah I just saw saw that spelled out but I yeah it's um, I think it's an L I, I would guess yeah it's probably from like Solanum Lycopersicum the Latin name for tomato and then Matzbox gene, and there you're already talking about like the Mick C type Matzbox genes. Um, when I read that to me, it was just like, okay, in my mind, I'm just gonna replace that with like Mats Mikkelsen box genes. Um, and cool. these genes, the Mats Mikkelsen box genes, they are very important. Like, you find them involved in it's like a family of proteins that share like um, share a similar structure, and they are involved in, in countless of um, plant uh, functions. Yeah, so I just want to quickly mention, so this gene already has got a name and it has also actually been researched before. So there was a paper that came out in 2019, also in JXBot, and they they basically described the function of this gene. Um, they did it a little bit in a different way. They didn't already have this phenotype. They didn't have these tomatoes, but they were investigating the, the genes and they knocked down this SLMBP3 and they they found that it is involved in the liquefaction of the tomato so they they say that the role of this gene is to regulate the speed of placental liquefaction and to control seed formation in tomato so but what i think what they did different to the previous study is in this case um they did not directly change the gene like at least in the like natural mutant that they observed it wasn't that the mm-hmm. gene itself was um damaged or knocked down or like like anything to the sequence of that gene was changed. It was in a promoter of that gene and that, that adjusted the levels of it. It didn't completely dim, um, uh, knock it out. It, it's not that it's completely gone, the gene product, but um, it's sort of like at a lower at a lower level, um, the gene expression there. And that seems to be like a major impact on, um, on sort of the effect that they saw because according to to um, one article that I read about this, they um, in like other mutants of the same gene, the seeds would not form properly. So you would get tomatoes, mm-hmm. but they would be sterile. And that for agriculture, that's, that, that's not great. And you can't go to like next generations and do breeding with them. Um, and so in the sort of, in, in that, in that paper, they described that they are actually able to get seeds, but then they also did CRISPR, on the gene as a sort of to, uh, inv- uh, way to investigate what's going on there and they use CRISPR to like knock it out they like to cut off like destroy sort of the end bit of the gene um, and they still got seeds so I don't really mm-hmm. know what's up with that story bit about like whether or not it's necessary to only like regulate the levels of the gene compared to like completely losing it um, 
and the relationship to, and the relation to like having seeds or not having seeds. Um, but apparently, in in their paper, they they state that it's like it's important that the gene is not completely destroyed. It's sort of just like turned down a little bit. Yeah, and this is a good this is a good way to sort of play around with how much of a certain protein you get. You can instead of playing with the protein itself, you can change the elements before it and also after it, which regulate how it is made, how quickly it's disposed of, things like that. Yeah. I, I am also curious. So they, they showed that it had seed, but I didn't notice, maybe I missed it. I didn't notice any sort of planting test where they looked at the germination, like how, if these seeds were completely healthy. Was that in the paper? I don't think it was. Um, so they didn't do any sort of um, viability tests for, for actual agriculture. So I guess like, because what I was missing is, I know it is different anyway, because when you're growing tomatoes in sort of a lab environment, you're anyway taking those seeds and washing them and drying them and, you know, you can grow them in sterile culture or things like that. But I, I mean, the tomatoes are making this jelly. This is what they're sort of naturally doing. So I, it has some function probably to nourish, not like help the seed not try out as it matures and as the tomato rots and also maybe, you know, nourish those seedlings as they grow. So I, I wanted to hear also more about that. I don't know much about tomatoes and I wanted to know more about what is the role of the jelly in the first place? Mm-hmm. What would happen if you remove it in the wild? I know that doesn't matter much with breeding, but all of these questions I were left a little bit un- unanswered for me. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Um, that would have been interesting to to see if they have like less, less success of making it into like if you just like... One way to get more tomato plants is just like cut a slice of the tomato and put it on soil and then sort of let it sit there for a while and then it sort of ferments on itself and then the, the seeds sprout. Uh, and I wonder if that's changed, like if that doesn't work as well uh, in in this in these varieties. But yeah, they propose that this AFF mutant, as they, they call it, um, that this could be very interesting to growers because it could like potentially have longer shelf life because um, they're sort of firmer in total the fruit um, like people who don't like the jelly bit they might prefer these tomatoes because they are sort of more fleshy and they don't mm-hmm. have like the the soft bits inside um, and then there's like some some processes where you just want the solids of the tomato and you don't care for all of the watery bits, yeah. like if you make a tomato puree or stuff like that. So for, for the industry, this could be also very interesting potentially um, to use uh, tomato varieties with this sort of mutation in them because then they have less water to deal with um, for, for their puree. It's like up to 25% of the fresh weight of a tomato is just like the locule, just like the jelly bit that depending on your point of view is like nice or useless and so um having the option to not have these 25 percent of locule in there could be interesting and uh, i guess ultimately the win here as we sort of mentioned at the top is that this is not genetically modified so these tomatoes can make it into the european market we don't have all those gm fears associated with it yeah yeah there's no no transgenics there's no evil biotechnology in there it's um a hundred percent natural, whatever that means <laughs> in modern marketing. So this is um, the paper: all flesh fruit and tomato is controlled by reduced expression dosage of AFF through a structural variant mutation in the promoter. Um, published in the Journal of Experimental Botany um, by Lei Liu. This is where the fun begins. This 
So my first fact is about a paper that came out in Ecology and Evolution at the end of last year. And it's about these acacia and acacia trees. Do you know what those are, Yoram? Okay. Acacia and what? Uh, it's an ant acacia. So acacia is the type of tree. It's actually, the genus was previously acacia and it's now got switched to uh, Vachelia. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've discussed this before. So there's like acacias in Australia and they got to keep the name acacia and the acacias in Africa had to switch the name um, a couple of years ago. But there's these kind of famous ant acacias which have these specialized kind of thorny bits which ants live in and the ants sort of house in these thorns. The thorns are actually called domatia, so like sort of dorms, like this, this mm-hmm. I think is a Latin word for home, domus. Um, and the, the ant lives inside and then they help to protect the plant by defending against herbivores. So if something tries to eat the plant, they rush out and attack the yeah. herbivore, basically. It's, it's quite, a, quite a famous example of symbiosis and, and quite beautiful. This paper is not really anything to do with this. It's just <laughs> sort of about the plant and one of the things that is a pretty huge threat to plants in our environment, which is... Uh, climate crisis. Yeah, broadly speaking, yes. More specifically, sort of fire, which happens fairly regularly. Definitely going to get worse. In fact, already getting worse with the climate crisis. But yeah, fire. And they were looking at how the plants might respond to fire as a way to protect them. And we know that plants can be really good at this. So plants have different sort of defense mechanisms. They can have really thick barks. They don't get burned. They can also have this ability to re-sprout really easily. So if everything sort of gets burned, they can make new shoots. Some other plants have, you know, seeds that have hard nuts or, or hide in the soil. And some of these seeds are even stimulated by fire. So they sort of sit and then it's only when the fire comes that they they crack open or the plant itself flowers and then you get sort of the new lifestyle. So this is sort of a response to come back after the fire has wiped across the landscape. So this this thing they were looking at was a little bit different. Um, They were instead looking at how plants use the cue of smoke to rearrange their resources within the plant to sort of stockpile things that might be valuable. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they see the smoke before they see the fire and then they prepare for the fire already. They, they, they start stockpiling, degrading stuff and putting it into storage. Yeah, so I'm not actually sure how this would work as far as timing and natural environments. I can imagine sort of a scenario where you have fire season and a mild fire happens and maybe that's... I think the timing of, of stockpiling doesn't quite work for smelling the fire in the distance and then rearranging stuff. But basically what they did is they did sort of controlled experiments on plants of three different ages. So two-year-old plants, nine-month-old plants, and three-month-old plants. And they then looked at the concentration of carbon, nitrogen, and also boron and magnesium in the, the roots as compared to the leaves after the plants had been exposed to this smoke. Mm -hmm. So for the two-year-old plants, carbon and nitrogen was lower in the leaves and higher in the roots once they'd been exposed to to the smoke. Sorry. Um, Although for the three-month-old and I think also the the nine-month, they didn't see the same sort of shift. Mm -hmm. But this has sort of led to the tentative argument that Maybe when there's smoke around, these plants are 
moving these valuable resources away from the bit that's above ground, away from the bit that's going to get burned, which would then allow them to bounce back faster once the fire Do has gone. Do you know like how, how quick they were with that? Is that something that happens in a matter of like hours or days, or is it something like sort of long-term? Do you mean the how quick the, they moved the stuff? Yeah, like if they see, like from the first time that they see the smoke, how quickly can they bring all of the resources into like a secure spot? So they did three repeated applications over an hour for the smoke, and then they took the plants out of the smoke and left them for 24 hours. Hmm. And yeah, then immediately processed after that 24. So it's quite, it is quite fast, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that could, like, even in, in, in the wild could work if you think, like, these big clouds that can travel fairly long distances. I mean, you've seen all the images where, like, entire cities are covered in the smoke from wildfires that are further away. So, depending on wind and stuff, they could see the smoke, like, days before the fire reaches them, and they could already be prepared for that. So, it's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I mean, it is a bit... You know, the younger plants didn't show the same response as the older plants. You could argue that those younger plants, you know, they haven't developed to a stage where they have these abilities, sort of they're, they're still putting all their energy into growth and maybe they haven't sort of sorted that out yet, but I'm not really sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. Um, I have a story about um, competition for plants. Um we always joke that we like only like um, organisms that can fix carbon and produce oxygen. And at least for the part of producing oxygen, um, there has been a, a newly, a, I don't know if it was discovered, but definitely like studied more thoroughly, um, a microorganism in the ocean, um, an ammonia oxidizing archaea. Um, and archaea are these like, if you think about a tree of life, you sort of have like bacteria uh, is one big branch and then you have like the eukaryotes, the other branch is like fungi, animals, plants, all kinds of stuff. And then you have the big branch of archaea that not many people like think or talk about, but it's like a major branch of the diversification of all living things and they by just like volume and weight, they make up like a large part of microorganisms, especially in the ocean. And there's these special kind that can oxidize ammonia. So they take like this NH4 compound and they turn this into nitrite um, and use that for their cellular um, metabolism. But mm -hmm. They often live in areas that are completely devoid of any oxygen. And they researchers wondered, like, how do they do that? Like, their metabolism requires oxygen to put that on an ammonium and then, like, get energy from that. How do they do that? Um, and they figured out that they can actually make their own oxygen. Like, they put them in a cell culture. They let them grow for a while. They measured the oxygen in the water. And sort of first they sucked all of the oxygen that was in the water out for their metabolism. And it was sort of at zero. And then it started mm -hmm. to come up again without any, and it was in a closed vessel. Um, mm -hmm. And it would only come up again then to like a certain low level. And then the, these archaea um, organisms would continue to grow on that. So they are just able to make enough for themselves. Um, but it means that even in areas where there's no oxygen available, that's like in, in gases form that they can get from the water, um, 
they are still able to somehow make oxygen there. And so the researchers have no idea how they do that, but it could have major impact as these, these species are so abundant um, for, first of all, the nitrogen cycle, because they seem to grow in more places than what was thought before. Before they thought like, okay, they, they sink down in these areas where there's no oxygen and they sort of are dormant. They don't do anything and therefore they mm -hmm. don't have an impact on the nitrogen cycle. But apparently they do something. Um, and so that could have an impact on... Uh, on the nitrogen cycle and maybe also on sort of oxygen production in general and it's just like really exciting and weird to find a non-planty thing or non-algae thing um, that can in the absence of light still produce oxygen i mean i know this is a generalization in sort of the broadest term of bigotry but do you think the archaea are like the sneakiest of all the organisms? Because they just sort of <laughs> pretended. We didn't know they were really a thing for a long time. You know, when we grew up in the textbooks, they did just have bacteria. Like we sort of suddenly were like, oh, crap, we should be really thinking about archaea as this whole other hugely important, hugely diverse yeah. kingdom of organisms. And, and now we're finding out that they're actually just like making oxygen quietly down there. Like They are definitely sneaky. I mean, I think the main difference between archaea and um, and bacteria is like they they make their cell wall differently, so mm -hmm. um, they are some sort of bacteria. And when you think about bacteria, it's in my mind, it's okay to. But sort they're of not some sort of no, they're not some sort of bacteria unless we can say yarm is some kind of plant. Like they're not; they're completely. There's a whole different kingdom of life. Like it's yeah. not the same thing. Yeah, they like they they branched off early and and yeah, they are their own kingdom. Um, but functionally, they're like small microorganisms that have like a different cell wall <laughs> than bacteria. But apart from that, I have many things that are I mean, functionally, you're basically a fern. I'm like <laughs> you take up space, <laughs> have like little spory, flaky bits that come off your skin. <laughs> like, yeah, fair enough. A bit rude to the archaea, right? Yeah. Um, I've, I've never really That's learned incredible. much about them. Like I, I know that in, in university when we studied microbiology, we... Um, like it was mentioned that they exist, but it was always like, yeah, this is the dark lands that we don't talk yeah. about. <laughs> like, here are some fungi to dissect and some bacteria to look at under the microscope. But like, archaea, don't don't care for them. Like they they exist, yeah, but just don't speak of them. Somebody's missing a chance to have some really clickbaity articles about how sneaky these <laughs> these little creatures are. Yeah. Speaking of uh, sneakiness, this is something that I talked about, well, I wrote about on the blog last week, and I, I also sort of talked about on Instagram. You should definitely be following us on Instagram at Plants and Pipettes, and also checking out our blog, plantsandpipettes.com. Um, but I, I found out last week that there's a word that is cryptogam, mm -hmm. um, and that also that that word is different from cryptograms. So just to explain quickly, cryptogram... Yoram, do you remember what a cryptogram is? Yeah, the, the cryptogram is sort of a riddle. It's like an encoded message. Yeah, it's a code, basically. Whereas cryptogam, in that case, the gam is referring to gametes. Um, so it's sort of hidden gametes. So it's, it's organisms where, back in the day, Linnaeus and friends could not work out where they were hiding their sexy parts. They didn't have clear flowers or clear seeds. So they're like, mm, I don't know, crypto. It's like, it's hidden, it's hidden gametes. Um, cryptogams. So this included things like ferns and mosses, um, all of what we call like the lower plants, like the lichens as well, and the fungi as well, and also um, yeah, some moldy bacteria things. So it was like, it wasn't really a real classification because it included plants, but also fungi and a lot of different things. But back in those days, we also weren't really clear what plants were. 
So anyway, CryptoGams, the group of organisms, CryptoGram, the code. My favorite fact about this is that back in World War II times, there was actually an algal biologist. So he would have fallen under this category of CryptoGamist. And he was hired to work at Bletchley Park, which was sort of the British government's code and cipher school to crack codes from the other side during World War II. And a lot of people think that he got hired to be a cryptogrammist because somebody just basically made a typo and didn't realize that cryptogammy <laughs> was different from cryptogrammy. There's some debate about this. His own son says that's not the case, that they actually wanted his skills. And despite, you know, this possible max up, he was actually helpful in the war effort. So he worked with algae and a lot of that involved, you know, taking these really fine, delicate algae specimens from the water and picking them up and then putting them, you know, preserving them for a botanical plates to make, you know, herbarium samples and stuff like that. And obviously when you pick up a very, like, beautiful filamentous light and floaty algae the second you take it out of water it all collapses on itself folds up and sticks together so he had some skills in making that not happen and apparently that came really in handy when the allied forces managed to i think sink a german u-boat there was a whole lot of documents that came out of that boat and those documents were obviously in the seawater all messed up and all together so apparently he used his sort of algae handling skills to help him handle this papers and dissect them and then therefore get the information and, and help crack code mm -hmm. in world war Two. Mm -hmm. So this is, I don't know, I think this is quite a charming yeah. story. Also a nice thing about, you know, in your PhD when you learn things and people are like, oh yeah, these are totally going to be transferable skills, you guys. And you're like, I'm only doing PCRs every day. Like there's, I can make jelly, like aga aga, which I run my, my DNA. It's basically jelly, but what else am I doing? Yeah, I think these days being able to run a PCR is a skill that nobody cares for. Okay, no, no, you've gone a negative way there. My point was, you do have transferable skills, you just don't know it yet. Like, no, and, and my point you're is thinking, like, yeah, I don't know, like I even, don't know. Even if you think like, oh, I'm just doing like the most basic PCR thing, like there will be a time when like suddenly everybody in the world knows what a PCR test is, at least to some extent, and eh. they require people to do PCR tests for them. Um, Sorry, so, I was missing the point there. I yeah. see what you're saying. <laughs> I thought we were not going to mention coronavirus in 2023. I didn't mention it. I just mentioned that, like, that's a skill, like, um, that you could use from your lab working days and be like, oh, yeah, I actually know how to uh, prepare something and how to make a master mix and how to run sample. Although, like, if I look back at my, like, own PCR stuff, I don't know if I would be fit to handle any patient data, anything that matters. <laughs> like, like, with pl my plant, I could usually repeat it. You don't want to do that with human samples. Uh, speaking of reproducibility, there was a news article in Nature where the the title is, in fact, half of top cancer studies fail high-profile high reproducibility efforts. <laughs> so there's this sort of big discussion we have in science that if you do something you should be describing what you've done in the method section of your your research work, your paper, well enough that somebody else can reproduce it. But as it turns out, this is not really the case. Yeah. What do you I mean, think, Yaron? We, we talked about the paper a while ago um, on, on the show where they tried to reproduce um, a paper on plant learning, where th there was this whole thing mm -hmm. um, where some group said, like, plants can be, like, um, what's the word, like, the simplest form of learning um, with, like, the dogs, the Pavlovs and dogs. Uh, anyway... 
um, Pavlovian dogs. They yeah, p- Pavlovian response is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they were, but there is like a word for that type of learning. But anyway, they they said like plants can do that, and then somebody else tried to reproduce that and couldn't reproduce their findings, even though they tried to like follow everything down to the smallest detail. Um, uh, according to what they 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 wrote in them in their methods sections, but I think often mm-hmm. what like in the stories that that, that you uh, talked about, it's more about that the methods that they put in the papers they don't actually work, right? Like it's not that they the sort of that the experiment has a different outcome, but that with the information that you're given, you're unable to reproduce what they've what they did because they leave out stuff or they like it's one of these like cryptic things where it's like as done before and then they cite a paper and then you look at that paper and that says like yeah we like materials as done before and they cite a different paper and you end up on this trail that goes back to the 80s where you get like a very bad photocopy online of some methods and you try to figure out what they actually did and you see like oh half of the chemicals are banned now so it's certainly not what they're it's certainly not the method that all of these people that said they were doing that they did they did something else but Mm. somebody started writing that in a paper so I think I think that is still a problem that like even people are trying to crack down on that. So this this has been a discussion that's been happening in the field for a little bit now that we should make everything reproducible. People have been yep. just like really sort of coming down on that now. It should be very clear what you've done. It should be but there are differences. But there's there's also a difference. So when you can't talk about reproducibility, I don't expect that you do the experiment and have exactly the same results as me. Like to the sort of, you know, numbers of it all, like but I yeah. do expect that you have sort of the same qualitative result. Like I want to see that you sort of get to the same point. And this is this is yeah. different. That you know that would be then not reproducible. And I think I don't know. I think what we see, we hope to see now, is that you don't have to repeat the same experiment exactly, but you sort of do this iterative thing where, in the next level of research, people say, "Oh yeah, I, I took this mutant that Yarum had, where he showed that it was pale green and grew slowly, and in our hands, it it did grow slowly, but only if we did it under this light. And under this light, it actually grows bright blue, and this might mean that it has, you know, you have this kind of thing where it builds. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily. Sometimes it will knock over the previous research and prove that that's false, but you want to see this kind of yeah yeah i guess yeah it's 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 a problem in the research community to to achieve that right i mean these these tales of oh we can't reproduce this reproducibility crisis has been ongoing for a while now um where there's like different analyses in different fields that says like look sometimes it's a bigger percentage sometimes a smaller percentage percentage of published research that's that could not be reproduced properly. Mm. And yeah, I think it's bad. Like, um, like I think that's something we, we need to change, but it's, it's really difficult with like the, the resources that are available with the way we set up the entire system. Um, it's really hard to do, to have a fair and working system of reproduction for published research. It's not something where you can just like, okay, yeah, just, you can't just double the cost of all experiments by having an independent group somewhere else doing think, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, that is with that's a part of it as well. Like usually nobody's going to repeat your experiments to see if they get the same results because there's no there's a cost yeah. to them and there's really no benefit to them. I mean this yeah. is you can't publish this, you can't get any sort of you can't get prestige out of it, you can't get grants for it. There's no way to do this properly right now. It's hard I, I it will get it'll improve, but it also has some barriers in it, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I have one last story from, from my side um, about a really cool band name. That's the Angiosperm Terrestrial Revolution. Um, and it's something that I think we talked about this, but I couldn't find any notes from us uh, about this. But um, there has been a paper published in, in the end of last year um, that was a, sort of a review paper analyzing multiple pieces, like multiple other studies, um, looking at what is the reason that we have such a div like diversification of species in general at a certain point in time when angiosperms arose. Um, this is um, Charles Darwin's abominable mystery, right? This is yeah. uh, one of the other terminologies. Like, what happened that made flowering plants just go bonkers and diversify as they did? Yeah, and there is... Um, uh, there were some interesting ideas in that and uh, that I want to talk about there. It's like, first of all, like before the, the flowering plants, you had like non-flowering plants. So if you think like pine trees and ferns, this is pretty much what mm. you had. And some of them were like fairly big, like different from what they look now today. But um, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, you had like ferns and pines and, and like um, conifers. Um, and then at one point you had like the mass extinction event happening uh, due to the asteroid hitting the earth. And then you had an explosion in diversity with the angiosperms arising. Um, and now apparently like we have evidence to point that like that it's a, a mutual beneficial effect. Um, the angiosperms, the, the way that because the angiosperms arose, then you could have all sort of like other like um, animals that could diversify as well, because suddenly you had like a big, uh, like you, you suddenly explored many more niches where animals could then set hold in and mm -hmm. and like go through evolution themselves and diversify and like adapt to different leaves. Like insects could start eating on different like plant leaves. Um, the the angiosperms also in general have like a higher photosynthetic capacity than the the gymnosperms, so they in general like capture more energy and then can make more fruit or more biomass which then can be more food for other animals and all of this together drove this um big sort of um so there's like a positive feedback yeah. loop happening here basically so the plants get a little bit more energy from the sun even if it's like a tiny percentage more a little bit more and that allows a little bit more you know a types of, in, well, you know, numbers of insects and ultimately types of insects, which then helps the diversification of the, the angiosperms more, right, by selection of the flowering and the fruiting, like this kind exactly of... Exactly that, yeah. Feedback, feedback, feedback. It created all of these, like, niches and opportunities that didn't exist before, and so per sort of area of Earth, per hectare of Earth, you suddenly had, like, ten times more opportunities for things to um, diversify into, and um, this is like an explanation for why we had this like massive um, boost in diversity for um yeah for for plants but for for animals as well and then all all sorts of other organisms um and yeah there, there's a there's this review paper that we're linking to and like a, a summary article about that as well um which i found like quite interesting because it to me it sort of paints the picture of like i can imagine more now what happens but when you just see sort of these these timelines these arrows where suddenly you get like something branches off and it's sort of an abstract concept but if i imagine it suddenly there are plants growing in areas where they wouldn't be growing before and they have fruits that can be eaten that weren't there before um that means that an animal can now go there and live off of that plant 
And well, I mean, this is also what restoration ecology is all about, right? Like, if you, you know, if you bring back a few plants into degraded places, then you're gonna, you don't just bring back the plants, right?、Yeah. You bring back the ecosystem. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. That the angiosperms, like the angiosperm forest, is much more diverse in species than a gymnosperm forest, even to this day.、Um, They can support much more diverse、um, animals living in there.、Um, and one last thing that I read in there, which I found also interesting, is that probably、um, it required the extinction of the dinosaurs for the angiosperms to really thrive, because the dinosaurs, being like large and heavy animals, would trample a lot of ground, which would make it very、mm. hard for like non-hardy angiosperms to emerge and and diversify there. And with like This like constant trampling of land gone through the mass extinction.、Um, this then like had was a blank enough canvas for angiosperms to arise, which I also. <laughs> I mean, no. This is this is also why like the African savanna is quite it's savanna. It's it's not got many trees. Is because elephants trample <laughs> like. They're big tramplers, and there's there's a group of people who are. I think Zimov is it. Sergey Zimov, I think, is the name. So I, I've talked about this before on the podcast. Definitely,、um, there was a short story in the Atlantic some years back called Pleistocene Park, and there's this idea that if the the very like Ni- Siberian tundra, if you have large animals back there, like for example woolly mammoths that we used to have. These actually change how the ecosystem functions because they run around knocking over trees. Like elephants are, are jerks; they actively enjoy knocking down trees. And this is actually not a negative thing necessarily because it means that there's more growth of grasses and sort of shrubs and like low-level things, which can have higher productivity and can also keep that sort of Siberian permafrost cooler potentially than you would have if you had more trees. So there's this idea of like rewilding this Siberian landscape by bringing in. Woolly mammoths, ideally,、um, <laughs> potentially, you know, sort of a large herbivore would be the the plan.、Yeah. But I mean, it's, I, it's fascinating. I find this whole thing、yeah. really amazing. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of rewilding, this is not really related to plants, but it's it's kind of on the same theme, and it's something that I've noticed has come up quite a bit in the last year, like year and a half. Particularly, I think it is quite related to coronavirus. So. I study,、uh, like, I follow a lot of stuff that's related to conservation ecology、um, as part of my job, and also sort of part of my interest. And there's been a lot more discussion about soundscapes that's come up in the last year. And I think、mm-hmm. it's because we've all sort of been sitting at home and thinking more about how humans are disrupting the earth. But also, people have had a bit more time on their hands、um, and are finding new ways to record the world around them that doesn't necessarily going out involve going out into the field. So something like putting a camera trap out is good, but another way you can do it is put sort of a microphone trap out there. So there's a paper that came out in the Journal of Applied Ecology, like at the end of last year, also, and it's called "The Sound of Recovery: Coral Reef Restoration Success is Detectable in the Soundscapes," and I think the title sort of explains what's happening here. So you can hear when there's a healthy coral ecosystem, like the sounds that you're getting from those those coral communities are different when it's healthy. Compared to when it's not healthy, and I just think this is really—it's really a fascinating idea that you can. It's, it's called biophony, biophony, biophony. So like bio, the organisms, and phony, like to hear.、Um, just this idea that you get different shifts depending on what humans are doing. So、hmm. this is something that happened during the anthropause, which is what we we're calling the sort of COVID time where we had lockdowns and people stopped. 
running around making a lot of noise, we could suddenly stop and listen and hear all of these natural sounds. And now we also have that sort of technological advance where it's easier and cheaper to get microphones out everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we also have things like citizen science projects where people are going out and doing this. Um, And it's sort of a, I don't know, I found it really interesting that there's this other side that we hadn't been thinking about very much is sort of listening in to what's happening, not just looking at the world, but sort of more listening. I think it's... I I would like to hear that now. Um, uh, Did they have examples on the... In the story that you read? So yeah, they do have, they have in the supporting information, some A soundscape. I'm not actually sure if it's the healthy or the the degraded um, coral ecosystem. But they also have this delightful table that has descriptions of the different noises. So like scraping, knocking, purring apparently is happening. Um, (laughs) Usually in the nighttime, a very slow pulse train with a very gentle rise and decay, often repeated continuously for several... It does sound like purring. Um, Raspberry also, I'm imagining. (laughs) You know, croaking, foghorn, whoop, laugh. They have this sort of description of different sounds that they're getting. Um... Yeah, I think it's delightful. And I, I'm I've obviously, you know, from the plant point of view, I'm curious what roles plants would play here. I think it would sort of be the way the the sound is absorbed. And I mean, I'm not I'm not suggesting corals are plants, guys. We know corals are not plants. But, you know, in a forest ecosystem, I think you get sort of cushioning of, of calls and also maybe different sounds of the wood depending on the age of the, mm-hmm. the trees and the health of the trees and, and things like this as well. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I I would I would be gladly doing research on the sounds of a forest. I would love to. I've I've seen a TikTok um the other day where they talked about like it was sort of from an audio studio where they talked about um microphone reviews, but they reviewed an outdoor microphone that is mounted on the outside of their building. Um, it's like rainproof and whatnot. It's like out there for like twenty years, and they use that to like at any point in time they can sort of mix in live sounds from outside of the building into whatever they're recording i just love the idea that they can just they have their own live stream of nature sounds because it's like in in some forest the studio building Mm -hmm. and they just have like one track where you can pull up the fader and there's like outside sounds from the from the wild that they can mix into whatever they're recording um and i mean you were doing the camera trapping stuff for a while right why not why not get into sound trapping as well? Uh, in Germany, legal reasons. You, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also because of the camera study. trapping is also like <laughs> like um, with like privacy rights and and whatnot. But like sound recordings of people are on a completely different level than like picture recordings of people. It's like immediately illegal, right? It's like straight to jail. Um, <laughs> so that's why I would not dare to just like put in public here a microphone without like. 400 like large-scale signs warning that there is a microphone trying to re- like re- um, record the, the forest in this area. A real cat fight. Cat fact. Uh, the cat fact today is not about cats, but it's about one of our other favorite organisms that is not a plant and features quite often on this podcast. Uh, crows. It's about crows. So this is a paper that came out at the end of last year in eLife, the journal by Klump and colleagues, and it's called New Caledonian Crows Keep Valuable Hooked Tools Safer Than Basic Non-Hooked Tools. And it's it's really showing 
what is said in the title. Basically, the crows have different tools. We already know that crows can use tools, but now we also know that they can place value on which tools are, are better or worse tools and the ones that are better they either sort of hide them or they also keep them you know, they have like little holes that are near them or they put them underneath their feet so they make sure i guess nobody else takes them <laughs> so yeah i think the, the main finding here is like they're showing this kind of safekeeping behavior and they're showing that they can place value and they like yeah. it's, it's sort of it's objective value but they're also giving it higher value in their little crow lives as well. <laughs> I love crows. I try to be friendly to all my crows in the neighborhood. <laughs> I, I want to befriend them at one point. Um, and I'm teaching my son to do the same, to be always nice to the crows. And so now we are <laughs> greeting them when we see them in the morning. That's how he's going to survive in the world. <laughs> <laughs> when the crow, crow, <laughs> crow apocalypse happens, yeah. Um, then he'll be safe because he was always polite with the crows. If you want to reach out to us, um, you can find us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, you can usually talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. On Instagram and sometimes on Facebook, you can reach out to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. We also have a blog um, uh, that's plantsandpipettes.com where you can read more stories about the world from plant science. We just had T and you already said it. We have like a new story up there right now and there will be new stories very soon. Mm-hmm. And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>